0: So this morning, we are actually in the last paragraph in Matthew chapter 22. We've been working our way through Matthew 22. So if you've got your Bibles or your uh, electronic device, uh, feel free to look up Matthew 22. We'll we'll take a look at the verses in a moment. But this is one of those passages, at least for me, that I've skimmed over in the past as as I've read through Scripture and uh, thinking... Yeah, I, I don't really understand it completely, but uh, you know it's just another one of those passages verifying that Jesus is the son of David, coming from the lineage of David, and then I move on. And I think that's one of the dangers in being so focused sometimes on reading through the Bible in a year. Nothing against that. Please don't misunderstand. There there is there is great benefit in reading through the Bible in a year, but if we use that as our main devotional Bible study time, we don't take time to stop and smell the roses. And I think there are times that, you know, we we read through three to four chapters a day. That's usually how it's kind of broken up on on those schedules. And we think, okay, I've done my Bible study, and we go on with a day. But there's so much contained in each verse, in each paragraph, in each story that we find in Scripture And I I wonder sometimes if God isn't listening to us as we read through our three or four chapters and saying, wait, 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 I I want to talk to you about that verse. But we're already on to the next chapter. Our passage this morning is an easily skimmable passage to just move on with. You remember that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been Asking questions, questions that they feel are really difficult. They're kind of gotcha questions. They're they're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to make him out into some kind of a rebel or, or insurrectionist. And in each case, Jesus amazes the crowds, amazes the multitudes with his answers. And he silences his questioners. And in the same time, he indicts them for their lack of focus on God and who God really is. And in each case, Jesus amazed the crowds with his answers, and as he silenced the the questioners, um, he made them more and more angry. Now it's Jesus' turn. We're in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Uh, Still Wednesday. Wednesday is a long day uh, in that particular week. And now it's Jesus' turn, and, and we find in, at the end of Matthew 22, we're going to start with verses 41. Well, we're going to read 41 to 46. That's the passage we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. And it says there, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now that's the question of the day, and that's the title of this message. It's whose son is the Messiah? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on no one dared to ask him any more questions. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? What do you think about Christ? The Messiah, of course, being the Old Testament Hebrew word for the Messiah, the, the Anointed One, the one who was expected to come. Christ is a New Testament word, Greek word for Messiah, both same, the Anointed One. And we know it actually meant the one who has come. Who is Christ to you? Jesus, Jesus asked them. And that's a question that every person born on earth must answer sooner or later. Who is Christ to you? What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? When it comes to opinions about Jesus Christ, the world has, has no lack of opinions, Suggestions. In fact, about 100 A.D., the Jews wrote this of Jesus, quote, Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. The leaders in his own day, you'll remember, we uh, went through this in the earlier part of Matthew, said that everything that Jesus was doing um, came, came from the devil himself. It was from the powers of hell. But for the most part, if we look back over the history of the world, humanity has been somewhat complementary, even if it's a little bit condescending, of who Jesus is, some of the great philosophers of the world have looked at Jesus as the the best of men. Ralph Waldo Emerson, himself, not a believer, said, Jesus is the most perfect of all men that have yet appeared on the earth. Diderot said he was the unsurpassed. Even Napoleon called him the emperor of love. John Stuart Mill, the philosopher, said he is the guide of humanity. The scientist Leckie said he is the highest pattern of virtue. Uh, Renan, the French atheist, said he is the greatest among the sons of men. Mahatma Gandhi said, I have regarded Jesus of Nazareth as one amongst the mighty teachers that the world has had. I shall say to the Hindus that your lives will be incomplete unless you reverently study the teachings of Jesus. But then he quickly adds, however, I do not accept the orthodox teaching that Jesus was or is God incarnate in the accepted sense or that he was or is the only Son of God. That's where the rub has been, right? That's where the rub has been. Down through the centuries, the deity of Jesus Christ. That's been the most attacked doctrine of the Christian faith. It comes from every direction. Amazingly, it even comes from some churches. I was, I was reading and uh, a while back, and I don't have the date, a pastor received an ad in the mail, and it said this. This Sunday at 7 p.m., the Christadelphians... Um, invite you to a Bible address on the subject, Jesus is not God, given by Arthur Woods, Bible teacher. Then a feature article in the Seattle Times that filled an entire page. Again, I don't have a date. read, the, read, the Reverend David Ason, pastor of, and they gave the name of a liberal uh, church, has swung vigorously into a sermon series emphasizing Jesus Christ as man, not God. He says that the reason there isn't any controversy at all on this issue is because, quote, there's always a bunch of people who say Jesus is God. He went on to say how important it is for us, quote, to have as proper a perspective of Jesus as we can, to know Jesus as he really is, and not some fantasy, end quote. In fact, he called biblical data concerning the deity of Christ, quote, a lot of darn nonsense, end quote. If you study the different religions, though many of them will say Jesus was a great teacher, their attacks on his deity are strong. Islam says that Jesus was one of the greatest prophets, second only to Muhammad. But he certainly was not the Son of God. Christian science teaches that Jesus was a mere man who demonstrated a divine idea, but his blood cleanses nothing. Freemasonry says, quote, we tell the sincere Christian that Jesus was but a man like us. Hare Krishna says Jesus is just another guru. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ is a created being, Michael. The Mormons say he is a spirit brother of Lucifer. And on and on we can go. There, is, there are really too many to list. Isn't it amazing that each of them felt necessary to proclaim who Jesus is not? You need to ask yourself, who is it that doesn't want people to know that Jesus is a son of God? Who does that benefit the most? Who is behind it all? Because that's where the battle is. There's only one answer. Satan. He's devastated by it and he doesn't want people to know. A false religious system, they have a problem with the unique identity of the deity of Jesus Christ. And that's the battle. When Nancy and I were in Abidjan in Ivory Coast, um, I've told you about our friendship with Ibn Ali, uh, two uh, young Shiite Muslim men. Um, and they invited us over to their brother's home, uh, brother and family, one, one evening. And we went and had a wonderful evening. Lebanese food is amazing. Uh, and Really enjoyed that and had a great conversation. A lot of the conversation was about religious stuff. Um, and what was fascinating was at the very end of the conversation, the brother said to me, you know, we are so much alike. The only difference is the cross. Isn't that fascinating? yes. That's the difference. That's where the battle line ultimately draws in the Christian faith. These these misrepresentations and misconceptions aren't aren't new. In fact, they they existed in the time of Jesus Christ. If you think about it, the Jews believed in a non-deity messiah. In the non-deity Messiah. They believed that the Messiah was going to be a human political uh, savior for them. He was going to come and he was going to save them from all the stuff that was going around and around them politically. And our passage this morning comes as a correction to that very, uh, very, very serious error that they believed. Isn't it interesting that Jesus began and ended his ministry with basically the same question? Remember back uh, in Matthew, but Mark 8 also, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? And now at the end of his ministry, he's asking the religious leaders, who ought to know, who do you say the Messiah is? And the point he's making is, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question of all times, and it demands an answer sooner or later. Of every person. The disciples came up with the right answer. You remember? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Full answer. The crowds at least shouted a basic right answer. Hosanna, son of David. But the religious rulers, (laughs) not a chance they were going to admit any of it. So after all of their questions posed to him to try to discredit him, he poses his own question to them because this is of utmost importance. They've got to understand this. And Jesus confronts them and the crowd that was gathered there at the Passover season with a bold, unequivocal statement here that the Messiah, in fact, is far more than just a human, but that he is God. God. And at that, and that's the very point of this whole passage here that we're looking at this morning. Now it all begins with a direct, pointed, penetrating question in verse 41 and 42 where we read, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, the Pharisees were still gathered together, and that's why it says, while they were still gathered, because you remember last Sunday, uh, they had come back to Jesus after the Sadducees had tried to do their best with Jesus, and the Pharisees came back and asked them, oh, you know, what, What's the greatest, uh, greatest commandment? And Jesus gave them the first and the second. So while they were still gathered, before they dispersed, Jesus asked them a question, and this is the beginning of a final personal confrontation with them, which goes all the way through chapter 23. And he does two things here. He, he, once again, makes their ignorance very obvious to those that are standing around. Secondly, he, because of their ignorance, points to their own judgment. Actually, the third thing he does is actually gives them an answer, the answer they're looking for, so they can go and complete their plotting against him. But he says to them, you thought the Messiah would only be a man, and I'm telling you that the Messiah is also God. And your failure to understand, understand that dooms you to judgment. Remember when Jesus first came into the temple courts and cleaned it out there at the beginning of that, that, first, that last week? And they were asking him, by what authority are you doing this? Remember, he didn't give them an answer. Well, in our passage today, he clearly answers that question. The authority he's saying is, I am more than man. I am God. It's powerful. And they get it. So let's take a look at that question again. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Notice that he didn't ask, What do you think about me? He was being indirect here. He's not saying, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, what's your opinion of me? He is asking them for a messianic identification. He wants to get their answer, what they think about the Messiah. And Jesus uses the Greek word Christos because he was speaking Greek with them. And whenever you have the name Christos with the article, the Christ, it always refers to the Messiah. Christos is, again, the New Testament term for the Old Testament term, uh, Messiah, referring to the anointed one, the one who was to come. So Jesus asked their opinion of what they thought about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one that they were waiting for. Whose son is he? Simple question. Easy answer. As far as the Jews were concerned, or so they thought. But it turns out they really didn't know the complete answer. It was inadequate. You see, they thought the Messiah was nothing more than a man, a human being. They thought his role was political, that he was going to come and rescue them from the tyranny of of the Romans and the Roman rule. They thought his identity was human, and Jesus wants to take them to another level of understanding of who the Messiah is. Whose son is the Messiah? End of verse 42, without a moment's hesitation, the son of David, they replied, duh, everybody knows that. And that was true. Any Jew that you would have asked at that time would have known that answer because that's what the scribes, the religious rulers, the, the legal experts taught. Now, why do they teach that? Well, because they get it from the Old Testament. It's a true statement. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 14, there's, there's many references to it. Um, but through the prophet Samuel, God gives the promise of an eternal kingdom To David, the Lord declares to you, Samuel, God through Samuel is saying to uh, 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 David, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, when you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for your name for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Just that phrase should have should have uh, lit up in the minds of the Pharisees well that can 't be referring to Solomon and his kingdom, I mean as glorious and wonderful the kingdom of Solomon was, and the riches that were there, and the wisdom of Solomon. His kingdom didn't last forever, but there's coming one in the line of David who's going to have an eternal kingdom. He will be the son of David. And from 2 Samuel on, the Jewish people knew that it would be David's son who would be the one to reign and rule as the anointed, as the Christ, as the Messiah. In Psalm chapter 89, this is repeated a number of times. For example, in verse 3. It says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. And then verse 34 of the same chapter, I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness and I will not lie to David that his line will continue forever. And his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. So it was very clear, very clear that God had promised that there would be a son of David who was to come, who was going to reign, and they all knew it. You remember when we studied back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, we came across two blind men who were trying to get Jesus' attention. You remember what they cried out? Have mercy on us, Son of David. Son of David. In Matthew chapter 20, two other blind men who were at the gateway of Jericho as Jesus and the crowd were passing by, they too cried out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. They were calling out to Jesus as the Messiah. We talked about how that designation, the Son of David, was a common reference to the Messiah. It just wasn't anybody. They weren't referring to any old descendant of David. They were referring to the Messiah. And that's the term the Jews used to identify David's greater son who would sit on the throne and reign. So the Jews were right that the Messiah would come in the lineage of David from the line of David. So their answer to Jesus was correct. This takes us all the way back to Matthew chapter 1. This is important as well. Remember when we started the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter is the genealogy. And Matthew went through great lengths to present Jesus Christ's genealogy in chapter 1. He starts out the whole gospel by saying in verse 1 this is a genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, Christos, Jesus the Christ, the son of David. Then he traces the entire genealogy from Abraham through David down to Joseph to Christ. Luke did the same, a very similar thing in Luke chapter 3, except he traces it through Mary. Why is that important? Because there could be no doubt, whether through Joseph, whether through Mary, um, that they were both in the Davidic line. And therefore, Jesus' pedigree was proven, no matter how you looked at it, that he was indeed a son of David. One commentator that I was reading wrote this, if Jesus had not been in the line of David, you can be sure that would have been a major issue in the New Testament with these leaders, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know well that they could have disqualified Jesus instantaneously from being Messiah if they could have proven that he did not have a divinic genealogy. They could have eliminated him quickly, and you know well that they must have checked then he went on to say, in the temple, they, have, they, they kept records on the genealogy of everyone. In fact, the records were kept so well that everyone knew their genealogy. So genealogy was very, very important. And if they could have disqualified Jesus on a non-Davidic family line, they would have done it in a second. But just the fact that they didn't, they never brought it up, That alone indicates that, in fact, he was from the line of David, because they would have checked that out. Therefore, it qualified him humanly to be the king of Israel. But their answer, even though it was true, it was inadequate. It was insufficient. It was incomplete. They didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus was actually the Messiah. That title in their minds was too big for this man. But Jesus in his conversation was actually saying that that title is way too small for who I am. Think about it. How many descendants did David have? Thousands. Thousands. They they could all be called sons of David. There were a lot of people to choose from. How do you distinguish who is greater than Solomon and who is greater than Hezekiah? Who is greater than Mary's husband Joseph? So how do you figure that out? Because being a descendant of David is only one aspect. Well, the best place to look is usually Scripture, and that's exactly where Jesus went, particularly speaking with the people that felt that they knew Scripture. And he did that with an amazing argument. Verse 43, he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him, referring to the Messiah, calls him Lord? Now, why is that significant? A little bit difficult to understand when, because we've got the English words here. But the word Lord, kurios, which actually was a common word in Greek, but was used over and over in the New Testament for deity. It was the title of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time he's called Lord, it's the word kurios. And if we were to go back to the Old Testament, and that's where Jesus went when he was talking to them, the word that we'd find there for Lord is Adonai. You know that word, Adonai. That was used all throughout the Old Testament as a title for God. Just as one example, in Genesis chapter 15, verse uh, 1 and 2, we read this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, Adonai. Yahweh, both being titles of God, both being titles of deity. And the point Jesus is making to the Pharisees here is that not only is the Messiah a human in the line of David, he is much more than that. He is divine. He is Adonai. He is Kyrios. He is Lord. He is God. So Jesus says if the Messiah is only David's son, human, how is it then that David calls him Lord. He calls him God, he calls him he gives him a, 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 a calls him basically deity, divine. And even more than that, Jesus says that David was speaking by the spirit. So these aren't just words that David came up with, saying, "Ah, yeah, this sounds good to me." He was it was God's holy spirit speaking through David. And Jesus then points to the Pharisees, points the Pharisees to where Jesus actually spoke this. And it's exactly what David said, and it's amazing. In verse 44, here in Matthew, Jesus quotes directly from Psalm 110. And we, we read some of those verses in the beginning of the, the service this morning. Verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, this is quoted in verse 44 in Matthew, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Lord said to my Lord. What's going on here? we got two Lords. Uh, It's a little bit confusing. Guess which words David used. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. Isn't that cool? you See what's going on? Lord number one is talking to Lord number two. Isn't that crazy? God the Father is speaking to God the Son. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, Jesus used Psalm 110, verse 1, for a number of reasons, uh, but mostly because they believed that this psalm was a messianic psalm. They just didn't understand the implications of the full implications of that verse. In fact, as Ben mentioned um, earlier this morning, Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. So when Jesus quotes a psalm, he's he's affirming three things. Number one, the psalm is messianic. Number two, it's written by David. And thirdly, and most importantly, it affirms the deity of the Messiah. That's the intent. That's the reason Jesus quoted it. And I think that blew them away because that's not what they believed. And what did God say to, uh, to David's Lord? Look at verse 44 again. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What's the significance of that? God himself, Yahweh of Israel, the creator of the universe, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, has designated a position of rank to the Messiah. That brings him to his own right hand and puts him in a co-equal place of power and authority and might. Which is also declaring him as deity. Declaring him as God. Sit at my right hand. That's why in Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews says, God's son sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's his place and only his place. God has lifted Christ and placed him at his right hand, a position of power and authority, and Mike, equal glory promised to the Messiah because he is equally God. And the verb tense is interesting and important. It says, you be sitting, if you do direct translation or transliteration. The present imperative continuous verb tense for English majors or English teachers, you will take a continual place of exaltation and power and might and authority at the right hand of God forever. That's what that verb tense is saying. And it's not only continuous, but it is invincible until I put your enemies under your feet. Everything and everybody will be subject to you, he is saying. It's that old idea where the king puts his heel on the neck of a vanquished foe. We can actually read about that happening in Joshua chapter 10 when Joshua had defeated the armies of five, uh, five kings. And they brought the kings to Joshua. And in verse tw- uh, 24 of Joshua 10, he, it says, When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with them, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. That was a sign of a vanquished foe. So God says to David's Lord, the Messiah, I'm going to bring you to the place of equality with me, a place where you wield my power and my authority, and it will be invincible forever. And all those who fight against you will be brought under your heel to show they are vanquished, they are defeated. Do you remember what Paul said in Ephesians 1.22? You do. And God placed all things... And God placed all things under his feet, talking about Jesus Christ, to be head over everything. And in Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, what happens? Every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is Messiah, he is Adonai. Son of David is not enough. That's Jesus' point. Son of David is inadequate. Son of David has to be added to the definition of the Messiah. Then Jesus asks him this question in verse 45. "If, If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? If he calls him Adonai, how can he be his son? It was a riddle for them a riddle that they can't answer, or perhaps they didn't want to answer. Perhaps they refused to answer because Matthew immediately says no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Why wouldn't they reply? Because then they would have to acknowledge the truth that is right there in Psalm 110. They'd have to acknowledge that the Christ had to be God as well as man how can he be son of david and david's lord at the same time the only possible way is if the messiah was god man 100 percent now you may be asking the question it's a good question so i'm glad you're thinking about it all this time jesus has been talking indirectly about the messiah so how then is he saying to them, these Pharisees in front of him, as, as he's talking about what do you think about the Messiah, how is he getting them to think about the Messiah in regards to himself, and that he in, uh, he in fact is God and man? Well, the Jewish multitude had already proclaimed that he was a son of, a son of David in reference to him being the Messiah. But what's the proof that Jesus himself is the actual Messiah? Remember, there are thousands of descendants of, of David. Uh, all could be called sons of David. But what's the proof? And if he is God and divine, how, how do we know that? How would these people know? Well, Actually, there was a lot of proof that these Pharisees were purposely trying to ignore. What was it? It was all of his miracles for the past three years all of the signs and wonders that he had been doing. Back earlier in Matthew, we talked about the fact that one of the main reasons, one of the main purposes that he performed all the signs and wonders was to show that he was indeed God. There could be no other explanation. Demons obeyed him. The wind and the waves obeyed him. He performed miraculous healings, the lame, the blind, the, the, the deaf, He knew their thoughts before they spoke them. He raised the dead to life. He forgave sins. There's no doubt. And John writes in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. I wish they were. They've been fascinating. But these are written that you may believe what? That Jesus is the Messiah. Period? No. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Purpose of his miracles, purpose of his signs and wonders. They all saw it, they all knew what was going on. There's only one person that could do that. And folks, this was a moment for the Pharisees. A moment they could have changed, that could have changed and transformed their lives. They could. They could see he was a son of David. Genealogy proved that. They could actually see, or they had seen, that he was actually the son of God because of the thousands of supernatural miracles that that Jesus had done. But instead of saying, Ah, I get it now. I believe. Their overwhelming pride and self-righteousness got in the way. They refused to believe and they refused to answer. They weren't going to go there. Folks, Jesus is still asking that same question today, still asking, what do you think about Christ? Who is Jesus Christ to you? To many, he's just a swear word to use. To others, he was probably a great man who lived a long time ago who had some neat things to say. To others, yeah, he's nothing. I I don't even think about him. To others, he's a threat to their way of life, to what they feel is freedom, to do whatever they want. So he becomes a threat. Who is Jesus to you? You need to know that Jesus loves you and wants the best for you now and for all of eternity. And he loves you so much that he left heaven and he humbled himself and suffered and died for each one of us. He did that because he loves us. And because he loves us so much, he wants to rescue us from the eternal punishment for those who reject him. You know, if you've never made a decision for Christ, I would encourage you to do that today. We don't know when Christ is going to come back. It's imminent at any moment. And believing in Christ is really as easy as ABC, if you think about it. Number one, we have to admit. We have to admit that we're sinners. Now, I get it. That's hard to do sometimes. We don't like to admit we've got issues, we've got problems. Everybody else has problems, not me. But we have to come to the point where we realize that we do not measure up to the holiness of God In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We need to come to a point where we admit that. Secondly, believe. Believe is to trust only in Jesus and his work on the cross for salvation. Believe is to trust that Jesus did indeed die on the cross. He shed his blood to forgive you and to forgive me for all of our sins and to rescue us. Most well-known verse in the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not be condemned but have eternal life. And C, confess. Confess Jesus as Lord. Romans ten nine. if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God rose from the dead, you will be saved. What an amazing promise. What an amazing promise. That means allowing the one who created us to become Lord. And scripture said his will is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. Jesus Christ, son of David? Yes. The far more importantly, Jesus Christ, son of God. One day we'll all be standing before him and we'll have to answer that question not who do people say that i am who do you say that i am in a moment we're going to be singing about the perfect love of god the song's called reckless love there is nothing about it is reckless love it was planned it was premeditated it was overwhelming it was a perfect love that uh, for sending Jesus Christ. We're going to pray, but if the Lord is speaking to you, I pray that you would, I would encourage you to make that decision if you have not made that decision for Christ. Father, this morning, as the worship team comes up, I pray that you would just speak very powerfully to our hearts. We We've have been transformed by Jesus. We've accepted Jesus. But Father, there may be one, whether here in the sanctuary, whether listening through Facebook, whether listening uh, online, getting on our our, our website and listening to the message uh, later on sometime, some, uh, yeah. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch and they would stop and think, who is Jesus to me? I pray that your Holy Spirit would lovingly and graciously enfold them with, with uh, your arms of love and say, I'm right here. I love you. I am, I am Lord. I, I came and I died for you, and I, I want to save you. I want to rescue you. I want to give you an amazing life, both now and for all of eternity. And Father, I just pray that you would do a new work. For those of us, Father, that have already made that decision to follow you, I pray that every day you would become more Lord of our life. That we would give more and more of our life and our decisions and our will and our desires over to you and allowing you to take control, allowing you to direct, allowing you to work in us and through us. So, Father, do something special in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.